Well, hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I apologize in advance for my voice. A little under the weather, but uh, still alive and kicking. We're going to be talking today about Advent um, in our Treasures of Tradition segment. Can't believe that Christmas is only a few weeks away as we speak. And, uh, of course, Advent, we know, is about preparing for the coming of Christ, not only as a babe in the stable at Bethlehem, but as king and judge at the end of all things. Um, But did you know there's actually a third coming of Jesus? And we're going to talk about that in our little medieval mentality segment, going to have some teaching from the great St. Bernard of Clairvaux, also going to share some wisdom from the imitation of Christ, lots of good stuff on the program today. But to begin... This Sunday was the first Sunday of Advent, and we're going to start with the uh, the epistle from the extraordinary form. Uh, it's from Romans 13, and it's St. Paul um, talking about living honestly as in the light. Do this knowing that the hour has come. It is time for you to awaken from sleep, for our salvation is nearer to us now than it was when we first began to believe. The night is nearly over, and the day is at hand. Let us, therefore, cast aside the works of darkness, and put on the armor of light. Let us behave honorably as in the day, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in debauchery and licentiousness, not in quarreling and jealousy. Rather, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and allow no opportunity for the flesh to gratify its sinful desires." So when St. Paul says it's time to awaken from sleep, the sleep he's talking about is sin. Uh, people that are in a state of mortal sin, are it's like they're in a trance. They can no longer see the light of the gospel. They can no longer hear the warning of their own conscience. They neglect the means of salvation, and they live as if there's no God. They live with no care. Uh, until finally they wake up as if from a dream, and hopefully before it's too late. Because the night is nearly over, he says, and the day is at hand. So that night, it represents ignorance and infidelity and sin, whereas the day represents faith and grace and reconciliation with God. The works of darkness are all sins, but especially those that are unknown to men, but are seen and known by God and deprive us of his grace. So St. Paul says, put on the armor of light, which he says consists of faith, hope, charity, and good works. These are the spiritual arms uh, which we are given to overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. And to put, the Lord on, to put on the Lord Jesus means that Christians, that's you and I, should think, speak, and act like Jesus in accord with the Holy Spirit and his inspirations. In short, to carry out the very meaning of baptism. And now the gospel for the first Sunday of Advent, in the extraordinary form, the coming of the Son of Man and the parable of the fig tree is taken from the gospel of St. Luke. There will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, and on earth nations will be in great distress, bewildered at the roaring of the sea and its waves. Men will grow faint with terror and apprehension at what is coming upon the earth, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, look up and hold your heads high, because the time of your redemption is drawing near. Then he told them this parable. Look at the fig tree 
or indeed at any other tree. As soon as it begins to bud, you know that summer is already near. In the same way, when you see these things come to pass, know that the kingdom of God is near. Amen, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. Now the reasons that this particular gospel concerning the Last Judgment is read on the first Sunday of Advent is to prepare our hearts for the coming of Jesus as our judge and to tell us that signs will precede the Last Judgment. Um, At the end, the, the final crisis is described in these violent terms and images that are very typical of apocalyptic literature, like, you know, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Joel. Jesus, the victorious Christ, will come to judge the world and deliver those who have remained faithful and are ready to welcome him. The signs, uh, especially persecutions, are actually pledges of hope and deliverance, which will be announced by the sign of the Son of Man, most likely the appearance of the Holy Cross, like we talked about last week. A sign that will be a terror to sinners, but, you know, those who have hated it, but a consolation to the faithful who have loved it. In verse 32, Jesus says, Amen, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. And, uh, and so they did take place, um, as we talked about last week. Because this prophecy of Jesus, like all the apocalypses of the Old Testament, telescopes near and far future events. So in this case, on the one hand, you have the destruction of Jerusalem, which occurred in 70 AD, which was in, you know, 40 years from uh, when Jesus was making this prophecy. So within a biblical generation, uh, hence his words, this generation will not pass away until all this has taken place. But on the other hand, the signs also refer to the end of the world. And in the apocalyptic genre, a generation can signify an entire age of the world or a particular stage in God's plan. So in this case, it's not either or, but uh, both and. And the one thing that's assured, the thing that we are assured of by the scripture and tradition, is that the end will in fact come. Here's what it says in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Before Christ's second coming, the church must pass through a final trial that will shake the faith of many believers. The church will enter the glory of the kingdom only through this final Passover when she will follow her Lord in his death and resurrection. The kingdom will be fulfilled then not by an historic triumph of the church through a progressive ascendancy, but only by God's victory over the final unleashing of evil. God's triumph over the revolt of evil will take the form of the last judgment after the final cosmic upheaval of this passing world. St. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4.16 how the last judgment will begin. At the command of God, the angels, uh, with the sound of the trumpet, shall summon all men to judgment. The bodies and the souls of the dead shall be reunited. The wicked will be separated from the righteous, uh, as Jesus tells us in Matthew 25, with the just on his right and the wicked on his left. The angels and the devils will be present, and Christ himself will appear in a bright cloud with such power and majesty that the wicked, for fear, will not be able to even look at him, but will say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. 
Now, Paul says in the book of Hebrews, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. So we call this the particular judgment. And if this is so, then why, why this public and, and, and uh, general judgment? Well, three reasons. Number one, that everyone may know how just God has been in the particular judgment of each individual. Number two, that justice will finally be rendered to the afflicted and the oppressed. Well, the wicked, those who have oppressed the poor and the widow and the orphan and the religious, and yet have often passed themselves off as, as uh, you know, upright and devout, they will be known uh, to everyone for their real character, and they will be forever disgraced, literally disgraced. And number three, that Jesus may complete the redemption and openly triumph over his enemies who will see the glory of the crucified and tremble at his power. The books will be open, and from them all men will be judged, all their good and bad thoughts, words and deeds, even the most secret known only to God, will be revealed to the whole world. And according to their works, men will be rewarded or damned forever. The just received into everlasting life, and the wicked consigned to everlasting punishment. Now this prompted St. Jerome to paraphrase St. Paul. He said, whether I eat or drink or whatever I do, it is if I hear the awful summons of the trumpet. Ye dead, arise and come to judgment. Now, during the season of Advent, the church reminds Christians, and that's you and me, of the coming of Christ to judgment in order that we may more zealously apply ourselves to profit by his first coming. The Bible's clear that only those who have acknowledged and received Jesus as Lord and Savior will be justified and glorified. The traditional gospel for the first Sunday of Advent invites you to ask yourself whether you have believed in him and loved him and admitted him into your heart and kept his holy commandments. You know, traditionally the season of Advent is a penitential season. There's no Gloria. The, uh, The priests wear the violet vestments, and everything's vested in violet. There's no flowers on the altar. And it's done that so that we can be reminded to to practice penance and good works in preparation for the coming of Christmas, yes, but also so that we can, with hope and confidence, await the judgment day of the Lord. And that, my friends, is no nonsense. Okay, um, we're going to take a short break in a minute. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about Advent. We're going to talk about the, the indwelling of Christ, uh, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of God the Father, the indwelling of the Holy Trinity, and what that means for us, and going to talk about what St. Bernard had to say about it. And also, I just wanted to remind you before we go that uh, next month, January, or not, not next month, uh, next year, January the 14th, and it's, and it's not that far away, um, uh, January 14, 2023, we're going to be hosting our annual evangelization conference. And I just wanted to let you know that um, you can register in advance by going to vmpr.org or calling our office at 877-526-2151. So check that out, and we'll be back in just a few minutes with more No-Nonsense Catholics on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. What is the season of Advent? Well, Advent comprises the four weeks uh, preceding Christmas. The word Advent means coming, and the season is used by the Church to represent the 4,000 years of preparation for the coming of the Redeemer, and at the same time, points us to his second coming as our King and Judge. So our Redeemer's first coming, of course, was when the Son of God was conceived by the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary and became man to sanctify the world by his coming. Now, according to the you know 4,000 years of biblical prophecy, a Redeemer was necessary because all men sinned in Adam and needed to be reconciled with God. But what about the chosen people? What about the people who lived under the old law? The Old Testament saints like David or, or Moses or Noah, uh, Abraham, couldn't they be saved before the coming of Christ? Well, the answer is yes. Uh, and, you know, you, you understand that Christ's sacrifice happened at a point in time, in history, but the significance is eternal. And so, uh, through the expectation of the coming of the Redeemer and his future merits, those under the old law could be saved who made themselves worthy of the grace of Christ through their virtue and uh, their works of penance. However, they could not be admitted into heaven. Therefore, they had to wait in the limbus patrum, that is the limbo of the fathers, or what Jesus called Abraham bos- Abraham's bosom. They had to wait until um, Jesus accomplished the redemption through his sacrifice on the cross, his soul then descending into limbo to announce to them the good news, uh, the 40 days after his resurrection, then ascending body and soul into heaven to open the gates of heaven for them. Now, Advent is also about the second coming. So when will the second coming of Christ be accomplished? Well, of course, Scripture is very clear, our Lord himself very clear, no one knows the day or the hour, except for God. Um, We don't know when it's going to happen, but we do know that the second coming will happen at the end of this world, when Christ will come with great power and majesty to judge the living and the dead. So the church has appointed the the holy season of Advent, for, them for three reasons. First, that we can consider the, the really awful state of mankind before the coming of Christ, and thereby you know, rejoice at the mercy of God, who so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may attain eternal life. And number two, that we can prepare ourselves worthily for Christmas. Right? Uh, this is not the time of celebration yet. This is a time of preparation. Pardon me, we want to prepare so that Christ can enter our hearts in the fullness of his grace, to renew our hearts and to dwell in them. And this is really where the rubber meets the road, the indwelling presence of God. We're going to talk about that in a bit. And number three, so we can prepare ourselves for the second coming of Christ, so that Christ will be for us a merciful judge. It's like our Lord said in Matthew 24, 42, keep watch, therefore, for you do not know the day when your Lord is coming. So Advent is about the coming of Christ. You can see me one second. I've got to keep the pipes lubed here. I'm losing my voice. Um, Advent is about the uh, coming of Christ. So we prepare for the liturgical memorial of his first coming at the stable in Bethlehem, as well as his future coming at the end of all things. But according to St. Bernard of Clairvaux, there is also a third coming of Christ, a hidden one. And so that's our our medieval mentality segment here, featuring my favorite uh, saint. So what did Bernard of Clairvaux mean by a hidden coming of Christ? 
Well, nothing less than the abiding presence of Christ within you and me. He said, and I quote, We know that the coming of the Lord is threefold. The third coming is between the other two and is not visible in the way they are. At his first coming, the Lord was seen on earth and lived among men who saw him and hated him. At his last coming, all flesh shall see the salvation of our God, and they shall look on him whom they have pierced. In the middle, the hidden coming, only the chosen see him, and they see him within themselves, and so their souls are saved. The first coming was in flesh and weakness. The middle coming is in spirit and power, and the final coming will be in glory and majesty. This middle coming, he says, is like a road that leads from the first coming to the last. At the first, Christ was our redemption. At the last, he will become manifest as our life. But in this middle way, he is our rest and our consolation. He says, if you think that I'm inventing what I'm saying about this middle coming, listen to the Lord himself. If anyone loves me, he will keep my words, and the Father will love him, and we shall come to him. Elsewhere I have read, whoever fears the Lord does good things. But I think that what was said about whoever loves him was more important. That whoever loves him will keep his words. Where are these words to be kept? In the heart, certainly. As the prophet says, I have hidden your sayings in my heart so that I do not sin against you. Keep the word of God in that way. Blessed are those who keep it. Let it penetrate deep into the core of your soul and then flow out again in your feelings and in the way you behave. Because if you feed your soul well, it will grow and rejoice. And you see why I love St. Bernard of Clairvaux. And you can also see that this concept of Christ reigning with you is not some newfangled idea. Pardon me. The indwelling presence of Christ and the interior apprehension of the Word of God or as the primary means of growing in sanctity, that's Christianity 101. But I'm afraid most, or many Catholics at least don't realize this basic truth. I think Scott Hahn put his finger up on it when he said that um, most Catholics in this country have been catechized, at least to some degree. Uh, they've been sacramentalized, right? The baptism, First Holy Communion, Confirmation. But they have not been evangelized. Uh, too often religion is just another subject in the Catholic school. And, and an abstract knowing about God is not the same as knowing God personally. Richie, can you put the, the diagrams up for us? I, I wonder if you've ever seen these, uh, these diagrams that they have in, um, you know, you see them in evangelization pamphlets and that sort of thing. Okay, this is this, and, and I'll describe it for those of you who can't see it. Uh, it's these little um, diagram about a Christ-directed life. So we've got a circle there. Uh, which represents the, uh, a person's life. This is the average secular person. Enthroned uh, in the center of his life uh, is himself, right? And then on the outside, there's a cross that represents oh, Christ and, and his kingdom. So that's outside of his life. This is a typical secular person living as if there's no God. Okay, and now the next one is, this is the typical Christian. The, uh, the, the typical Christian, the self is still on the throne, but Christ is in his life. It's, you know, it's, it's, religion is one of his many activities, right? He, he goes to church on Sundays or, or some Sundays or, you know, at least Christmas and Easter. And I'm sorry to say that's the typical Christian. And then the diagram that's up now represents what we're actually shooting for is the Christ-directed life. 
where the cross, representing Christ, is on the throne, and the self is at the foot of the throne, subject to the will of Christ. Right? This is, uh, this is what we're shooting for. This, when we talk about new life in the Spirit, when we talk about how the Holy Spirit comes into our soul at baptism, how His uh, presence remains with us so long as we remain in the state of grace. But the Holy Spirit's not like the Force in Star Wars. Holy Spirit's the third person of the Blessed Trinity. And we know there's only one God. And therefore, you know, whenever one person of the Trinity acts, they all act. And Jesus promised to send us the Holy Spirit, but he also promised to be with us always. As St. Bernard pointed out, it was Jesus who says in John 14, 23, whoever loves me will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. And this is the core message of um, Our Lady of America, which was recently approved by the church, and I mean May of 2020 recently. And Mary came to remind Catholics in the United States of the teaching of our Lord from Luke 17, 21, that the kingdom of God is within you. And how? Well, through the indwelling of the most blessed Trinity in your soul through sanctifying grace. With God in your soul, the kingdom of God lives in you forever because your soul is immortal. And because your soul is immortal, the kingdom can never be taken away from you so long as you remain in the state of grace. So St. Paul says to the Romans in uh, Romans 8, 35-39, Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or famine or nakedness or danger or persecution or the sword? As it is written, For thy sake we are put to death all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. But in all these things we overcome because of him that loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor might, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. That is why our Lord says, seek first the kingdom of God, because nothing is more important. Now just let me share for you, with you a, a bit from a reflection that I saw, not surprisingly, on catholicreflections.com. Uh, th- this comes from May the 5th of 2020. So this is right around the time that the, uh, the devotion of Our Lady of Good Success was uh, approved by the Church. It said, um, what would you say if someone asked you, how do you know that God comes and makes his dwelling in you? Uh, perhaps you may also be at a loss for words to describe the, this mystery of our faith, that God wants to make Your heart, his dwelling place, how does that happen? By the gift of faith. By the gift of faith, we know that God dwells within us to speak to us, to strengthen us, lead us, and guide us. We know by the gift of faith that God is real and desires the deepest and most intimate relationship with us. Well, the good news is that faith leads to understanding. And this means that the more we are attentive to the voice of God speaking within us, leading us, guiding us, the more we begin to understand his indwelling presence. So Our Lady of America said you must be devoted to the indwelling presence of God. That means to conform yourself to his will. St. Augustine said, Faith is to believe what you do not see. The reward of faith is to see what you believe. So faith in the indwelling presence leads us to answer the question, how do you know that God makes his dwelling within you? With the answer that God alone can give us, and that is faith, 
That's a gift, but it's a gift that we can share with others, that we can give witness to his presence in our lives. How do I know God dwells within me? Because I see him there, speak to him there, and he speaks to me. And I would add with St. Bernard, because I keep his word in my heart. And that's no nonsense. All right, back with more. I'll right here on Virgin Most Powerful after these messages. Stay with us. You know, in the last few days, um, some folks like Dr. Joseph Shaw, Dr. Peter Kuznevsky uh, have posted their reactions to a recent five-part series uh, that was published in the Church Life Journal from Notre Dame University. It was written by um, theologian John Cavadini, seminary professor of Scripture Mary Healy, and Father Thomas Wynandy. And I think this series itself is a response to the growing numbers of faithful Catholics uh, uh, who are showing interest in uh, the traditional Mass and, you know, the growing numbers uh, who are attending it. And I think it may have been spurred, actually, by the video Mass of the Ages. I don't know if you've seen that on YouTube. It's, had, um, it's been up for about a year, and it's had over a million views already, uh, which is far more viewers than this uh, series in the Church Life Journal has readers. Uh, but... In any event, uh, the criticisms in the series that are aimed at the traditional Mass uh, were summed up in a headline for uh, Dr. Kuznevsky's post on Rorati Celi, which was entitled, Unconvincing Propaganda Against the Latin Mass, the Public Embarrassment of Cavadini, Healy, and Wynandy. That's pretty strong. Uh, Dr. Shaw's response was simply a response to Cavadini, Healy, and Wynandy, uh, and takes, though, as it's is it's Exhibit A, uh, the series uh, reaction to a uh, quote from Professor Kwasniewski. All right, so it kind of kind of going in a circle here. But anyway, his comment that they quoted was, "If at all possible, we should avoid participating in a form of prayer that deprives the Lord of the reverence that is due to Him." The Novus Ordo systematically does this by having removed hundreds of ways in which the Church showed her profound reverence for the Word of God and the holy mysteries of Christ. That's that's pretty strong language, but listen to their response. Their response was, Such critiques presume that the Reformed Rite must be an occasion of significant irreverence, that there is little appreciation of the many celebrations of the Reformed Liturgy with profound reverence, feeding the souls of countless members of the faithful in parishes throughout the world. Now, I trust that you can see that they completely missed the point. One may be tempted to conclude that they uh, deliberately missed the point. Because Dr. Kuznevsky was not talking about celebrations of the Novus Ordo lacking reverence, but how the Novus Ordo reformers removed hundreds of ways in which the Church showed her profound reverence from the rite itself. So I've often documented on this program uh, and in my book the many prayers that have been eliminated or rewritten, the scripture passages that have been suppressed, the reduced signs of reverence in the rubrics, like fewer signs of the cross, fewer genuflections, and so forth. The abuse of the new liturgy is not the point here, although experience certainly demonstrates that uh, 
Liturgical abuse is all too common. I hope the authors are correct in that the Reformed liturgy is being celebrated with profound reverence all around the world. But in my experiences traveling around the world, okay, such celebrations are pretty rare. Now, Dr. Kosneski, Dr. Shaw, pretty much all the traditional Catholics I know are faithful Catholics who assisted at the Novus Ordo Mass for years, maybe decades maybe, most of their lives. Pardon me, the Novus Ordo didn't keep them from being devout Catholics. So how to explain the, uh, the exponential growth of attendance at the traditional Mass? Why are so many devout Novus Ordo Catholics choosing the traditional Latin Mass? Well, the answer is pretty simple, really. This remarkable growth in attendance at the, at the traditional Mass was initiated by its mere availability. Just the fact that um, it was able to be celebrated at parish churches after uh, Benedict XVI's Moda Proprio Samorum Pontificum. That is to say, the many Catholics who have come to the traditional Mass since 2007 are the same Catholics who assisted devoutly at the Novus Ordo, and many still do. Certainly, the majority of the many traditional Latin Mass Catholics who are daily communicants have no other choice than to attend a daily Novus Ordo at their local church. So, the main criticism in this series is a straw man. And throughout, the authors of the series are, are guilty of another logical fallacy, and that is they beg the question. In logic, to beg the question means to assume the truth of a proposition to, uh, to be proven without arguing it. Okay? To assume that one of their premises with, is true without offering the evidence. How many times... Have I heard that to criticize the new Mass is to go against Vatican II or, or heaven forfend against the Holy Spirit? That's nonsense. First off, you can read the Vatican II liturgy document. You can read Sacrosanctum Concilium until your eyes bleed and you will not find a mandate for a new order of the Mass. And, and the work of cobbling together the new Mass was undertaken by a committee, not the direct inspiration of the third person of the Holy Trinity. Our good Lord himself gave us the test by which we will know if something is of the Holy Spirit. Matthew 17, 16 through 20. By your fruits, you will know them. And you know, he goes on to say, does one pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree bears good fruit, but a rotten tree produces bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by your fruits, you will know them. Now, since the introduction of the Novus Ordo Mise, the majority of Catholics, and in many places the vast majority of Catholics, simply do not go to Mass at all anymore. And the downward trend of Mass attendance is, is still ongoing. So if the Novus Ordo is literally dying on the vine while the traditional Mass is growing exponentially, I think you've got your answer. But listen, and I want to be clear. I have no animus against the Novus Ordo Mise, or certainly against the Catholics who assist at it. I consider any Catholic who can say the act of faith and mean it to be a traditional Catholic, regardless of what uh, rite they attend. 
The Nova Soto Misa was the Mass that I attended when I converted to Catholicism. It was the Mass of my baptism, my First Holy Communion, my confirmation, my marriage, my introduction into the apostolate. Um, the new Mass, complete with lay lectors and liturgical guitar players, of which I was both, was the only Mass I knew. So like many others, I discovered the traditional Latin Mass, and it was like finding a pearl of great price. I do not question for one moment the validity of the Novus Ordo Misae. In fact, I will say right now that if an ordinary Catholic cannot go to Mass at his parish church, worthily receive the sacraments, and save his soul, then the gates of hell have prevailed against the church, and there's no reason to be a Christian at all. But that does not mean that a novel liturgy, the first of its kind ever introduced into the life of the church, is automatically superior to what came before just because it's new. New and improved, those, those are not the, that's not the language of Catholic belief and practice. New and improved are the words of marketing. And I seem someone to recall someone who said that um, well, he was rather upset about turning his father's house into a marketplace. I seem the fact that the, very, uh, the Novus Ordo is, is a fabricated liturgy that it was imposed on the church by papal fiat rather than the product of organic development, makes it something that should be carefully and critically examined. And uh, looking critically at the Church Life Journal series um, of articles led Dr. Kosnevsky to draw several conclusions. And I'll let you, you can go to the Rorate Chile uh, blog spot and see Dr. Kosnevsky's article and Dr. Shaw's post as well and read it for yourself. But um, a chief among the criticism that Dr. Kozneski has is that he says that the authors simply don't know what they're talking about, either academically or experientially. He points out that in a five-part series on the new Mass, they don't even mention Alibali Bunini, all right, uh, who's, you know, in spite of his profound influence on the Reformation of the liturgy, going all the way back to the pre-Vatican II reform of Holy Week under Pius Twelfth not to mention the fact that he was head of Concilium, of the, the committee that fashioned the Novus Ordo. As Dr. K says, to put it in perspective, he says, imagine a five-part series on the Protestant Reformation that doesn't mention Martin Luther. Nor, he says, uh, do they acknowledge the regrets expressed by other major figures, um, you know, uh, those who were involved in the reform, like Romano Gardini, or Alphonse Cardinal Stickler, the great French liturgist Louis Boyer, who lamented the, the, the new Mass, or, and not to mention Cardinal Ratzinger, a.k.a. Benedict XVI, who called the Novus Ordo a fabricated liturgy. That's his word. Instead of the traditional Mass, what was once sacred remains sacred and cannot be forbidden. So the point is that the authors of this article were very selective in the evidence that they chose to present. All right, so uh, Dr. Kwasniewski says the basic premise of the authors of the series seems to be a variation on Chesterton's old quip about Christianity. Remember, he said, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. They would seemingly say the same thing about the new liturgy, that the liturgical reform has not been tried and found wanting, but found difficult and left untried. Because they admit for, for 50 years things have not gone well. 
you know, including abuses and irreverence and lack of mystery and secularization, the whole works. But they maintain that the reform can't be the problem. Now, they tell us all we need to do is give that liturgical reform one more chance, just one more time. You know, it's, it's kind of like the, I, I, I hesitate to make this a comparison, but it's kind of like the socialists. When you point out that everywhere it's been tried, it's, it's you know, brought nothing but ruin and despair. And they would say, well, that's it's because they haven't done it right yet. We're the ones who will do it right, okay? So it's like, yeah, we spent more than 50 years, okay, on this liturgical experiment. And fully 20 years ago, the documents Liturgium Authenticum and Redemptionis Sacramentum, promulgated under St. John Paul II, actually addressed precisely the issues of... Uh, poor translation and abuse of the liturgy. So we're going to talk about that a little more when we come back. And if we have time, some insight from uh, Saint, or no, from not Saint, but Thomas Akempis from the Imitation of Christ. All right, stick with us. We'll be back in a few. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. We've been talking about the reactions uh, to a five-part series in the Church Life Journal uh, about the traditional Mass. Uh, essentially, um, you know, it, it was a real uh, hatchet piece, just kind of uh, uh, aimed at the traditional Mass and the people who assist at it. And um, I, I had mentioned a couple of documents that came out right at the turn of the century, Liturgium Authenticum and Redemptionis Sacramentum, that were, you know, precisely meant to address the problems with the new liturgy, you know, and get the Novus Ordo back on course. And, um, you know, the, the first of those documents, um, Liturgium Authenticum, the fruit of that was the corrected translation of the Missal from 2010, you know, where we got rid of, and and also with you, and for you and for all, right? You know, those things were finally corrected. Thank you, Benedict XVI. But Redemptionis Sacramentum goes, you know, uh, abuse by abuse and says, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do that. And there has been really um, no serious effort to implement um, that document. Uh, you know, I, uh, you know, all the same nonsense just continues unabated even after specific condemnation from Rome. And in this area, Benedict XVI, led by example, um, you know, he, he celebrated the Novus Ordo beautifully. And, and I know a handful of priests who, who celebrated in that way. But, uh, you know, for the most part, I think he would have done better to issue some anathemas. Okay. <laughs> Leading examples, like, it's like the Al Capone said, in my neighborhood, you get uh, farther with a kind word and a gun than just a kind word. But, uh, you know, that's just my opinion. And my opinion, in 10 bucks, I'll bet you Big Mac fries and a Coke. However, I do think that Dr. Kwasniewski was on to something when he suggested that the authors of, of this series just really didn't know what they're talking about. Because I think most Catholics simply don't know what's in Vatican II. I mean, they, they know what they've been told is in it. But it is entirely possible to read and understand these documents in a way that is consistent with the tradition of the Church. That's what Benedict XVI called the hermeneutic continuity. And frankly, there's no mandate in those 16 documents for a Catholic to believe with divine and Catholic faith anything 
that he was not already bound to believe uh, prior to the council. Uh, but most Catholics don't know that. And, and the reason is that the hermeneutic of, of rupture, this idea that, that the Vatican II was a new start from zero, um, those who hold that hermeneutic, the press, uh, liberal Catholics, they have really uh, been able to control the narrative from the very beginning. And so the, uh, the so-called spirit of Vatican II has been communicated to the faithful primarily through indoctrination. You know, and I think it was a real misstep. I've said this before. I think it was a misstep on the part of the traditional movement not to embrace the documents of Vatican II and make them our own. And, uh, but I would say you know, that it's never too late. And I would say that the root error, and I do think that the, these authors were off base, um, and the, the, the root error, and, and really of the whole post-conciliar enterprise, is to dismiss the principle of tradition. Dr. Kosnevsky put it this way. He said, for these writers, the fact that the church has believed or done something for centuries or even millennia means nothing. If a modern theologian comes along and thinks he sees a flaw and has a better way of going about it, then scrap the entire history and get to work with building a better machine. You know, the, the great liturgical principle of the church um, was set forth at Vatican II in Sacrosanctum Concilium. Listen, quote, in faithful obedience to tradition, okay, let that sink in, in faithful obedience to tradition, the sacred council declares that Holy Mother Church holds all lawfully acknowledged rights to be of equal right and dignity. Let that sink in. This is years and years before the Novus Ordo. Vatican II, all rights. Obviously, that would include the 1962 Missal that we refer to as the traditional Latin Mass. All rights to be of equal right and dignity. That she wishes to preserve them in the future and to foster them in every way. Again, that includes the traditional Latin Mass. The Council also desires that, where necessary, the rights, plural, be revised. And you notice it doesn't say replaced, but revised, and only, quote, where necessary, unquote. Now, how they should be revised, it says, if it is found necessary, how should they do it? Carefully, in the light of sound tradition, that they be given new vigor to meet the circumstances and needs of modern times. All right. So what, if anything, did the council consider necessary? Sacrosanctum Concilium says, in the restoration, notice not reformation, but restoration. In the restoration and promotion of the sacred liturgy, pardon me, full and active participation by all the people is the aim to be considered before all else. Okay, active participation is the most important thing. Well, I think it should be self-evident that the most basic requirement of active participation is to show up for Mass in the first place, something which fewer and fewer and fewer and fewer Catholics are doing, with the exception of the local traditional Latin Mass, which is growing. 
It's like I told Cy Kellett on Catholic Answers. He asked me in 2017, I think, if the traditional movement was going to continue to grow in the future. And I answered that tradition is the future. It's the future of the church precisely because traditional Catholicism begets traditional Catholics, while progressive Catholicism begets non-Catholics. Right? This is one of the, the, the one is growing, the other is declining. And that's no nonsense. But frankly, finally, I, I should say, I, I think once again, Dr. Kwasniewski is on to something when he says these folks don't really know what they're talking about. That their animus against tradition is a result of their formation. Uh, it's just what they've been taught. Pope Francis has made clear his disdain for tradition and for us rigid traditional Catholics, especially the young, uh, you know, so that these people may well feel that their love for the church makes it their duty to defend the papacy in the person of the pope, even if that means throwing tradition under the bus or even his immediate predecessor. Now, in that case, we should forgive them as our Lord forgave those who persecuted him even on the cross. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Of course, it's always possible that uh, folks on the traditional side of the debate are just a bunch of ideologues. Uh, their Novus Ordo counterparts are, are a bunch of psychophantic toadies just trying to, to, to curry favor with the current ecclesiastical regime. In which case, it is still incumbent upon us to forgive them. Because that's what Catholics do. We spent a lot of time in the last few weeks uh, talking about forgiveness, and it goes as much for this situation as for any other, regardless of where you stand in the liturgy wars. And it puts me in mind of... Um, Book 3, Chapter 2, The Imitation of Christ on a Good and Peaceable Man. I don't have time to do it this time. We'll do it next week because I think that it's really important to, to look at the situation. We are in a, a situation where the church is, is embroiled in confusion, and God is not a God of confusion. He is the God of peace. And so I, I believe it's entirely possible for us to live and, and have peace within the church. But only through the exercise, uh, the heroic exercise of virtue. All right, and that's no nonsense. Okay, so that's coming up next week along with the uh, second Sunday of Advent. We'll talk about some of the Advent traditions uh, next week too, I imagine, the Advent wreath and, uh, and uh, other traditions that have uh, you know, uh, existed throughout the centuries. But I do want to tell you about an um, uh, upcoming event, uh, extremely important. It is, um, and it's coming up before you know it, uh, in March of uh, next year, March 25th and 26th, 2023, it's our annual Spiritual Warfare Conference. And this year, we are going to have um, the, the same roster as last year, which was our most successful ever, Father Chad Rippinger, our own Jesse Romero, Dr. Dan Schneider, and Kyle Clements from Libra Cristo. Uh, they will all be with us again, as well as our special guest, Bishop Joseph Strickland, will be joining us uh, along with our usual suspects. And once again this year, the conference is going to be held at St. Joseph's Catholic Church in Pomona because um, it can accommodate uh, far more people than we can at our little Sacred Heart Chapel. And it is a beautiful old church. The, the uh, sanctuary there is just magnificent. I love the traditional architecture. Also, I would be remiss if I did not inform you that uh, last year, even with the bigger venue, we had to close registration early 
because there was such a large volume of folks who wanted to attend. Now, it's our most popular conference. It's important that you register in advance, and I would encourage you to to register soon. Uh, Admission is $95 for one person or $180 for a married couple, so you get a little break if you're a married couple. The registration is open now. It's already filling up. If you want to attend, do not hesitate to visit bmpr.org and register online or call 877-526-2151 to reserve your place at the Virgin Most Powerful Radio Annual Spiritual Warfare Conference, March 25th and 26th, 2023. Um, Also, we have another conference coming up in January. On the uh, 14th of January, VMPR will be hosting our Evangelization Conference right here at the Sacred Heart Chapel in Covina, all-day event. Our featured speakers, Johnny Romero, brother of our own Jesse Romero, and the man who literally wrote the book on lay evangelization, our own Terry Barber. And for this um, uh, event, the regular admission is only $35 for a single or $60 for a married couple. Also, uh, uh, registration is already open for this uh, event, and uh, you can go to vmpr.org or call the office. That toll-free number, once again, 877-526-2151 for the January 14th VMPR Evangelization Conference. Hey, by the way, um, I want to say thank you so much for listening. And if you go to vmpr.org, be sure to download the app. It's the most stable way to listen to your favorite programs from Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Also, while you're there, the end of the year is coming. Hit that donate button. We we desperately need your help uh, financially as well as spiritually. Always uh, a need. Always going to use whatever comes in to further um, our cause of which is your cause, which is the great commission of getting people to fall deeper in love with Christ and His Church. So uh, yeah, vmpr.org. Donate now. Download the app. Also, been having some trouble with uh, with Apple. Not exactly what's going on. I know that I've been, uh, my, this show has been hacked here, and Jesse, uh, you know, hackers are going after it, and we're having issues. So you can always go to uh, any of the other popular platforms we're there, or to the NPR.org app. All right, thanks a million. See you next week. <laughs>